Hi, I'm Sam Rigol, the Chief Executive Officer of Sunrise Energy Metals. Um, Sunrise Energy Metals is developing one of the world's largest battery raw material plants on the east coast of Australia. Uh, it will be a, um, a world-class producer of nickel and cobalt sulfates for the electric vehicle industry. Um, the Sunrise project, um, about uh, three hours west of Sydney, uh, contains almost a million tonnes of nickel and 160,000 tonnes of cobalt. Uh, we are developing the project to be fully integrated from mining all the way through to chemical production. Um, this is one of the most advanced projects globally uh, and is ready for construction, being fully permitted uh, with financing now underway. Sam, good to meet you. I appreciate you coming on the show. We've not met or spoken before, so I'm keen to kind of get in and understand um, what, you've, what you've been doing and what you're going to be doing. But why don't we start, first of all, with a little bit of background on you. What's your relevant experience? I've been in the mining industry almost uh, 35 years. Um, a lot of that was spent at Rio Tinto, almost a decade and a half there, working on various um, major developments. Um, I guess the major uh, role there was working in Mongolia on the Ayutolgoi project, the large copper project we developed there. Uh, ran a project evaluation for Asia Pacific. Uh, after leaving Rio Tinto, I joined Ivanhoe Mines as head of business development and strategy. Uh, and worked on their African projects, Kamoa Kakula, uh, Platte Reef. Um, and in about 2013, I joined uh, Sunrise Energy Metals, which was then called Cleantech, uh, as Chief Executive Officer. Uh, the main attraction for, for that investment at the time into Cleantech was its hydrometallurgical processing technology, um, which had been developed and used by many companies globally in the mining industry. And in short order, we, we acquired the Sunrise project to apply to that technology. And that's what we've been doing since about 2015. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Okay, thanks for that background. And, and so who, who you uh, uh, helped by, who's, who's on the team at an operational level or development level that's, um, you know, doing things on the ground, as it were? Yeah, we um, uh, have a, a relatively small executive team. So my chief financial officer, Ben Stockdale, um, very experienced in, in the mining sector, both uh, in the, the junior and mid space uh, and in, in financing large projects. Um, we have a, a relatively small on the uh, team on the ground in New South Wales, um, looking after uh, operational issues for the asset, including environmental monitoring, community engagement, um, uh, liaison with uh, key suppliers. Um, but given we are currently in, um, in financing phase, uh, once that is completed, we expect the, the project team to ramp up to, to being quite large. Right. Okay. Um, let, let's kind of get into the kind of um, the, the thesis component for again for people sort of new, new to investing. We're seeing a lot of these Gen Z audience coming in need to understand what they're buying into. So, obviously, two ext extremely uh, relevant uh, commodities in the shape of, of nickel uh, and cobalt, but they've kind of got a they've kind of got a different history of, on, and, and run up to this point. Nickel's gone on a, on a tear last year, uh, and this a um, little bit of confusion around um, what's been going on at the LME recently. So, give us a, give us your take on on the, the macro for nickel, and then maybe maybe cobalt uh, after that. Um, well, these, these metals will eventually be very large battery electric vehicle plays. It, it's not quite the case yet for nickel. Nickel is still predominantly a, a steel input and uh, pricing and, and market dynamics are driven still very much by the steel industry. Um, but that said, um, battery demand for nickel is growing very, very fast. 
think I think we estimated about over 400,000 tonnes of nickel was consumed in batteries last year. Um, batteries are becoming much more nickel intensive and future chemistries will continue to use more and more nickel. And it will be um, uh, most likely the, the largest cost metal input in the production of a battery. Uh, cobalt's a little bit different in that the industry has been pretty successful in thrifting cobalt in recent years. Um, and we've seen a reduction probably in, in the demand forecast that you were seeing four or five years ago for the industry. But that said, at least in our experience, we're not seeing many battery makers saying they want to remove cobalt completely. It's actually still a key component uh, for the life cycle and safety of the battery. Um, e even at the, the thrifting levels we're talking about now, we're still looking potentially at another 150 to 180,000 tonnes of cobalt needed by the end of the decade. Uh, which, you know, in a market which is just over 200,000 tonnes is still a very, very large ask. The, the issues with cobalt obviously come back to ESG, reputational issues, given so much of it comes from the Congo, uh, where there's also a very large artisanal mining uh, industry. So um, Sunrise is unique for its cobalt. It, it is a very unusual nickel laterite in that it has an exceptionally high cobalt to nickel ratio. In fact, all of our cobalt revenues will cover our operating costs plus a margin on top of that. We will be a negative nickel cash cost producer, which puts, puts us in a very strong position. So, yeah, well, it, it certainly does. Um, with regards to the nickel market, we're looking at OEMs uh, across the globe trying to secure uh, their supply chain for you know from 2025 and, and, and beyond. Um, those conversations are, um, well... It, <laughs> They've taken a little, a little bit of a, a front seat at, at the moment because companies like you are getting, you know, inbounds on that. Um, and and I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, what what, what have you been doing to, in terms of enabling those conversations and getting getting ready for um, those conversations? Yeah, I mean, back to the point you made earlier about the LME and the activity in nickel markets. I mean, personally, I think it's been a disgrace in the way the LME has managed this. Um, it, it's brought an awful lot of uncertainty to the market, uh, but it certainly did prompt some very active responses when automakers and battery manufacturers and chemical companies saw what happened to the nickel price. Um, but we've been here before. We only have to think back a couple of years when um, Chinese companies bought almost the entire nickel, physical nickel inventory in the LME um, in the space of a few weeks. So these are very illiquid, shallow markets. And anyone who operates in metals know that knows that of all the metals on the LME, nickel is the most volatile. Um, but you know what has happened in the last three months has created um, some serious angst within the automotive industry, um, not just because of the price volatility, but also I think the dawning realisation that even if you bring on every identified project in the market today uh, for nickel, uh, there still won't be enough material to meet the, the industry's needs by the end of this decade. So um, for us, it's been very much an education process. I've, I've just come back from Europe where we've been meeting face-to-face -face with uh, the auto industry. Um, and it, it has been, uh, I think, um, an iterative process. We've been, we've been delivering this message to the automotive industry for four or five years now. I mean, it was plain to see for anyone who knows the industry that the, the demand levels that automotive were requiring for nickel and cobalt production were at best um, 
going to be a real stretch. At worst, we're going to be virtually impossible to deliver. Um, and I think we're already well behind the eight ball. You know, the, the work that should have been done, the capital that should have been deployed should have been done four or five years ago. Uh, and we're now we're playing catch up. Uh, it's not the case for all commodities. There are, there are some like lithium, which probably has the potential to expand a lot faster on the supply side than other metals. But uh, nickel and cobalt have their own unique challenges. And I, I think um, when you ask car makers where they see their greatest risks, it's certainly around nickel and cobalt at the moment. Um, I, the, the engagement in Europe was interesting. I, I think uh, what's, what's apparent and has been for some time is that the automotive industry does not understand mining very well at all. It is very much mining 101, the discussions, um, but they are coming up the curve very quickly. And a number of them have engaged mining consultants and advisors to help them evaluate the industry, the markets generally, and projects as well. So there, there are movements now towards trying to understand how they build this supply chain. It has to be a completely new supply chain. It wouldn't surprise you to know that almost every opening comment when I meet a car maker is, um, you know, what is the cost plus margin approach that the mining industry uses? And I have to explain, we don't use cost plus margin. We're not a component supplier. There is a, there is a published um, market price for these metals that uh, we expect to be paid and our shareholders expect to be paid. Uh, so it's even just the basics of understanding how materials are priced that needs to be understood. But look, having said that, I'm, I'm very confident these, these companies are coming up the learning curve very quickly. Um, they realise that the only way they are going to get metal uh, is to make investments to secure it. And um, some, some are ahead of, I think, the curve um, and their competitors um, but you know, I think all of them are making efforts now to work out how they can actually secure the metal they need over the next um, four or five years to be able to build the cars because the, the battery plants are being built, the cell manufacturing capacity is going in, the auto plants are being retooled, uh, but they're gonna sit very, very empty uh, unless they do something about the metal. So, but, but they're, they're, they are used to, because they're way far, far downstream from where you guys are, they're used to being able to go to Metal Trader or, or into the market, buy what they want at whatever the market price is. Do you do you think that we're going to see more of these OEMs move further upstream and, you know, beyond the kind of offtake kind of agreements, which they have maybe, you know, thought about doing what some of them you know, have done and into putting equity into, into companies? Or are they going to rely on battery manufacturers to do that job for them? And I mean, where do you, where do you see the kind of money flowing from and, and to? I think you'll see a mix. Um, we certainly see some car makers who will rely very heavily on traders to secure their material or simply outsource that, source that function to their battery supplier, you know. It's either LG's problem or Panasonic's problem or Samsung's problem or CATL's problem. Um, we, we tell them, actually, it's your problem because all those companies are approaching us too for metal. So they don't have the metal units yet either. Um, uh, look, others, I think, view um, the industry evolving in a way where batteries actually commoditize quite quickly. Uh, and therefore, the investments being made today in battery supply chains are really to secure the technology. But once the technology is secured and understood and optimised for their products, their, their cars, their vehicles, 
then the focus will need to be on how you keep that supply chain full. So it does come back to the metals again eventually. Uh, yes, I do believe you'll see some investments in mining. Um, I think a lot of investors get a little bit confused on the headlines they see. There's, there seems to be a strong feeling that you know, Tesla, for example, invests very heavily in mining and is integrated very, very heavily upstream. It's not the case. Um, Tesla has invested quite heavily in mid parts of the supply chain. Um, you saw Volkswagen announce recently MOUs with Chinese companies, um, uh, and uh, that's for producing nickel and cobalt in, in Indonesia. Um, they've, they've taken a view that given their requirements for metal, which are enormous given the scale of their organisation, the only solution for them is China, really. It's, it, it has to be if not the only solution, at least part of the solution for them. So they're betting very heavily that they can operate successfully in Indonesia and, and generate the metal they need. Um, but I, I expect you'll see over time um, increasing direct investment by the automotive industry in mining assets. Uh, they might not be big investments to start with. They might be um, introductory investments to get to understand the industry and what's involved in developing new supply. Um, but I think once that happens, it will be a domino effect. There is, I, I liken this to a game of musical chairs, and there aren't many chairs left. There are very, very few. Once one goes, I think everyone will start moving quite quickly in that direction. Um, these car companies are going to have to be, build very large divisions focused just on raw material supply. Um, it's, it's not just manufacturing that's going to have to be part of their core competence anymore. It's, um, it's actual ownership and operatorship of assets that deliver the key metal units into their supply chain. I'm intrigued by what you said about the, the fact of lack, lack of understanding by the, the, the bars um, needing to kind of, you know, um, source the various commodities that, that, that they need to source. They don't understand enough about mining. But when you say things like, you know, Volkswagen is, you know, you know securing their supply chain from uh, MPI in, in India, uh, sorry, Indonesia, you because you, you talk heavily about you know, sustainability, environmental, and all that kind of good ESG stuff, and as a bat, you know, as a battery commodity uh, miner, you're going to have to um, talk about the you know the, the the traceability of where where your you know metals have come from. Obviously, because the whole DRC thing has put a spotlight on that over the last ten years or so. Um, but NPI feeding into what these OEMs are, are, are trying to do, because there's a kind of this debate around sort of, you know, clean nickel, dirty nickel, you know, sulfate and laterites and, and so forth. So do you think that was a wise move by Volkswagen? Uh, look, it's not for me to, I guess, um, comment on their strategy other than to note that, you know, most of the best analysis on the carbon footprint for NPI, if you go through the conversion into mat and then into uh, a sulfate, you're looking at about five times per unit of nickel, the carbon footprint um, compared to a sulphide route or an HPL route. So it's going to be very carbon intensive, not just because they use coal as a source of energy production, but because the coal is the reductant in the process. You can't remove it. Um, it it's very difficult. I mean, the, the Chinese have talked about installing renewable energy capacity in Indonesia, wind farms, solar farms. I mean, the scale would just be enormous. Um, you'd be you're talking hundreds of square kilometres of endemic uh, tropical rainforest that would have to be cleared just to provide power to run these operations. I don't think it's a solution. Um, 
uh, not for the battery industry, it's fine for stainless steel production, but if you want to uh, produce nickel that has um, uh, an acceptable carbon footprint, you're locked into either sulphide resources or laterite resources. And, and then, uh, you know, the benefit of laterite obviously is you get the cobalt credits, which typically don't often come with the sulphide. Um, and for us, it's about demonstrating a flow sheet that can deliver the metals very cheaply um, with at very high quality and, and create the template for how this should be done in future. And, and how do you think the kind of governments, I mean, you've just come back from Europe, right? You've been, you've been talking to um, companies over there. I don't know if you spoke to any sort of government bodies um, in the mix there. They're, they're having to think about, um, you know, their policies and, um, and, and kind of and 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 set the set set the tone as it were but by you know in, in incentives or tariffs or however they want to kind of come at it. So again, if I, I know you don't want to comment on Volkswagen, but things like the the source of the the metal is really really important. Not just the companies, but they've got a different set of economic drivers, but also to the governments involved because they want to be seen to be doing the right things. They're under a lot of um, pressure from you know act activists to to do that. So. How did you? Sorry, did you have any conversations with any, any uh, of the relevant governments wherever you were, Germany, etc.? Yeah, I, I did, um, and, and you're right. Governments uh, are beginning to, and will need to play a very active role in this space because, in areas of critical mineral supply development, there is not a level playing field. I mean, if you if you want to talk about why China has expanded so quickly, it's really driven by government policy directed at. Um, directing low-cost debt through a variety of funding arrangements, whether it's Belt and Road, um, whether it's China Development Bank, whether it's the state-owned uh, commercial banks. Uh, there's an awful lot of very low-cost, long-term debt that China has made available uh, to expand raw material supply. Now, that support just has not been available in the West. If a company like us would typically rely on the equity markets to do what we need to do, but Look, for the size and scale of the projects we're looking at, it's just unrealistic. Um, so what you're seeing now is, uh, you know, we announced uh, early this year, the Australian government uh, through Export Finance Australia um, has conditionally committed $400 million to our project. Uh, I've had a number of discussions with ECAs globally, North America, Europe. Uh, there's plenty of debt funding available for this project on very, very good terms. Um, the key piece for us now, though, is to put the equity piece in place, and that's where our focus is. The you know what's happened in Ukraine, I think, is really instructive, and and certainly it's not lost on Germany. Um, in in creating the dependency on Russia they have in oil and gas, they run the risk of doing exactly the same thing with China on critical minerals. Um, and um, you know we need to be very very careful about how we build these supply chains, and it, it's certainly within the scope of OEMs and the major global car makers to say, well, we're comfortable with China risk. You know, we're, we're happy to take all of our production from China. We're happy to partner with them. But you also have to accept on the downside there is that uh, if there are any problems in future, we've seen what uh, can happen in the Ukraine in terms of um, uh, uh, sanctions and other problems like that. So it doesn't pay to... to um, uh, uh, to have such a concentrated supply chain, diversification will become really important. Um, and I think that's front and foremost at the moment 
certainly with the car companies we're thinking about, it's not not the issue now. I, I think if you put all of your eggs in, in, in the China battery basket, there are a couple of risks. One is those batteries will be prioritised for Chinese manufacturing and Chinese producers. Uh, but secondly, even if they're not, the quid pro quo will have to be you'll, you'll potentially have to build most of your cars in China to get access to that, that uh, supply. And, you know, companies like Tesla, are, I think, are finding that. You, you need a very large footprint in China if you want to, if you want to scale. Um, you need to be prepared to accept batteries with lower energy density using different chemistries. Um, but look, in the end, if you want to scale quickly, China is probably the one place in the world today that can do that for you. Our challenge is to build that same capability in North America and Europe as quickly as we can. Yeah, and I, I guess then therein lies the opportunity. If you look at what 2.6 million tonnes a year nickel market and, you know, I think 1 million of that is ex-China uh, and 25% of that comes from Russia. And, you know, I'm not sure the sanctions are in place for, for, for nickel uh, yet, um, but that to be a big chunk of um, nickel coming out of the market if, if that does happen. So a d- diversification jurisdictional risk is, is very much top of the agenda for sure. But that's, a, that's an opportunity for you guys. And, and, and again, was that part of the discussions in, in Europe? You know, people trying to say, well, um, let's, let's, Look at us. Let's look to Australia. Yes, I mean Australia is regarded as potentially the best source of battery minerals in the world. We have them all. I mean, we're the world's largest lithium producer. We have the world's second largest uh, nickel reserves. Uh, the world's second largest cobalt reserves. Uh, you know, it, with capital, we can build a very, very strong. Um, metals pump that will that will push metal out to the rest of the world down here and the Australian government to its credit has been investing very heavily in thinking about not just how you help build the mines but then how you convert that metal into value-adding product that can go directly into those supply chains we, we have to think differently we can't build the nickel mine of the past if we want to do this well we can't build the cobalt mine or the lithium mine of the past we can't just ship concentrate there's a there's a huge opportunity here for Australia, and and this is just part of the new supply chain. There's a there's an enormous battle going on within this supply chain between the mining industry, the chemical industry, the battery producers, and the car makers for who takes what responsibility for which factors of production, and that's just a fight for margin at the moment. And until we resolve that, um, you know we. You know, I think, I think the mining industry is in a very, very good position because we have the capability to do both the mining and the chemical processing eventually. Right, because we've seen the European Battery Alliance have come together for everyone in, in, the, in the food chain and enable it, right? And, and, and the Europeans seem to have got their act together on, on that front politically as, as well as at you know, corporate level. Um, in Oz, you, you, talked, you mentioned there, you've, um, you've got a facility available to you, 400 million bucks, um, which is, which is great, but you need to put the equity component for that together. Where's that going to come from? Uh, because if, I, if I'm looking to industry, clearly everyone's clamoring for the, for these metals, right? And, and we've, we've talked a lot about nickel, but co- cobalt um, too. Um, do you think that you're going to be able to get, what's the equity going to look like? Where's it going to come from? Well, we took the view very early that when you think about equity for a project like ours, and you know we're targeting sort of a gearing ratio somewhere in the order of 50% to two thirds, um, which, you know, it'll depend on how the debt structured and so on. So we're looking at roughly, you know, let's say $600 million of equity for a project like this. Um, 
I guess the offer or the proposal to the car industry is that if you want to invest with us in, in developing this source of supply, all of the supply is available to you. Uh, and, you know, with a 50-year reserve life, that underpins an awful lot of battery production capacity. Now, we've got enough nickel in this resource to convert about two-thirds of the US vehicle fleet to electric over time. So there's, you know, this is a strategic resource that has enormous scale. Um, we took the view very early on, when you look at the players in the supply chain, who are the most likely to be able to participate at that level of equity investment? And to me, um, it was clearly the car industry, um, it, but it would also be the most difficult to convince that it need to, needed to be that far upstream. You know, maybe with chemical processes, mining's not such a big step, um, uh, maybe a bit less so with battery manufacturers, but car makers are a long way from the mine site and the, and the coalface. But they do have the capability to write checks of that order, um, you know, not easily, but um, certainly uh, it's, it's, it's within the scope of what they can do. Um, and what's been interesting as the, these discussions around investment have emerged is that the car makers are actually very keen to control that part of the supply chain. They do want control over the metal. Um, they understand that ownership in mining assets hedges some of their pricing risk. You know, as, as metal prices rise rapidly, um, their price is hedged because they participate in equity ownership in an asset that's generating a lot more cash, uh, even though they're paying more for the metal. So there's, um, they can see real value in that. Um, how long will it take to get there? I, I may have um, overestimated the speed at which they could get their head around mining. Um, because in, you know, we, we are now a construction-ready project, fu fully permitted, ready to build, and we have been for about 18 months. Um, and, and now the discussion is just slowly working with those end users of materials so that they can understand what the risk profile of a mining project looks like, how they can participate and add value, how that can be a springboard to some of the other things they want to do in in the electric vehicle space once they, they have capability and, and, under, and an understanding of, of this space. Because most of them at the end of the day are already thinking about how they build their raw materials business. This isn't completely foreign to them. Many of them have worked in platinum and palladium and, and, and rhodium for their catalysts before, whether it's through traders or some of them have actually been active in the markets themselves. They, they do understand this to some extent. Um, but to me, you know, I, I think it's going to have to be the auto industry that drives this. Um, I don't see a lot of courage from battery and cell manufacturers. Uh, there's a lot of finger pointing, you know, you, know, you go that way and we'll do this. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, the companies that will hurt most through failure are going to be the automakers. And, and that's the point I keep making. The risks here are extremely asymmetrical to the downside. If they, if they execute very well, uh, there's probably uh, good value uplift in the margins they're going to generate from their electric cars. They'll build all the cars they need to, good quality. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll chase Tesla very hard. If they get it wrong, horribly wrong, and they don't get access to the metal they need to build these batteries, um, it's, it's a life or death situation for, for, for some car makers. And when, when you look at a market where there isn't enough material uh, to supply, then you... Uh, there are going to be winners and losers, and the winners are going to be the ones that move fastest 
to secure what they need. It, it, what's interesting, it, miners, uh, sorry, the automotives never really wanted the technical risk or the capex risk of, of, of mining, but it's getting to that point now. Perhaps their their, their hand is going to be forced, like you say. So it, 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 interesting indeed. But for for the battery um, manufacturers, I, I would wonder why they wouldn't. Going to step into the breach because again, they if they do, they could capture more of the more of the margin because they're in control, as opposed to you know, say the automotive guys saying, "Well, we, we, we've got the medals now. Can you go and do your technical wizardry and um, we'll, we'll uh, engage in a, with, with with you?" So, as you say, where, where's where's the margin going to be captured? That's the, I guess that's the interesting bit in all of this. Yeah, and if the Chinese are any indication, they have. Um they've taken the view that the, the key piece is controlling raw materials. So CATL, you know, has been actually quite active in putting its foot on raw materials directly. Um, uh, but, you know, look, it, it, one of the things with CATL is that it has grown so quickly, it has the benefits of scale that many Western battery manufacturers don't yet have, and certainly not the battery joint ventures that the car makers are building. So, um, you know, C CATL probably has the balance sheet capacity to do that, um, but I'm not seeing that uh, actively yet among the Western battery manufacturers. And in fact, I see, you know, as I said earlier, a distinct lack of courage and a real hesitancy to put serious dollars into mining. It's not something that they want to do, and that they'd rather push that risk downstream to their customer. Okay, so one last one last question on the macro because we really should talk about you um, because it, and and this this is around how you value your company, which is you talked about thrifting cobalt out of out of the design, and you know we've seen lots of different battery designs for different use cases, trying to reduce the nickel component because, as you say, it's the most expensive uh, element in there. Um, do you do you think that this whole inflation environment that we're in is making people just think twice about? moving over from internal combustion engine cars to battery was it just slowed it slowed it down uh, somewhat uh, and, and how does that affect the the supply side of things and therefore the the demand side of things yeah there's no doubt that um, the inflationary metal prices of the last 12 months have pushed up the cost of batteries and you see that reported widely already um, does it does it impact the purchasing decision of an electric car? We don't know yet. I mean, Tesla seems to be maintaining its margins relatively well on, on all battery formulations, whether it's MCM chemistry or LFP chemistry. Um, I think we have to you know, keep in mind that the metal price escalation ultimately ends up being only a relatively minor part in the final price of what is a you know, pretty heavily priced product, a car at the end of the day, an electric car. Um, but there's no doubt that uh, car makers are now thinking very hard about having to raise the price of those vehicles to maintain margin. Um, Tesla has been very successful at that. We'll see whether the major automakers can do that. Um, uh, but you know, if, if there are risks around you know, real price escalation, I often, I often heard it said, well, LFP will be the solution, for example. Let's just forget about all of these difficult metals and go to LFP. Um, it's it's a, um, an interesting argument and one that's quite alluring to a lot of people. But people also have to remember that if you want LFP batteries, you have to go to China to get them. That's where the IP is controlled and it's where all the manufacturing takes place. Um, you also have to remember that there is probably going to be no... Uh, material recycling industry, if the, the industry bases it 
its chemistry on LFP because there just simply isn't enough economic value in a battery for a recycler. So if you want a recycling industry, either the consumer is going to have to pay for it or the car companies are going to have to pay for it. And, and the third point I think which people often forget is LFP uh, as a chemistry has pretty much reached a dead end. There's not much more we can do to squeeze energy density out of, out of LFP. We can do things with um, the form factors, the batteries and the battery management systems. But in the end, LFP is a dead end for a chemistry, unlike NMC, where there's still a lot of upside and potential in the way we formulate the, um, uh, the cathode and the anode. So for us, um, in our discussions, at least with the car makers, they all desperately want NMC. They, um, nickel and cobalt are going to be a very important part of their formulation. Um, and not all of them are planning on making big moves to LFP at this stage for, for the very reasons I've just set out. Well, as you say, you know, given given what you're saying about the um, the supply uh, at the moment versus demand and that delta, um, hopefully technology will come to our come to our aid further down the line. And uh, interesting to see what that looks like. But look, back back to you on on the on the money side of things. Like, no, no one's having a conversation with you about well, uh, you know, how, how are you going to, you know, how are you d- doing things on the ground? You know, you're you're ready ready to build. You've you've got, I guess, export credit agency and and, and Australian government help, or whether it be federal or or, or state um, help on the on the debt side of things. The equity is the important bit for you. You've said, you've told us where you think it might come from. What's the timeline for you? Have you set yourself a, a timeline? Can you set yourself a timeline? Because that that's the only missing piece to this puzzle. No, I can't because it's really in the hands of the counterparties we're talking to. Um, but look, what I can say is there's an awful lot of interest and activity at the moment um, and, uh, you know, multiple parties are actively engaged around this. Um, to, to the point earlier, Australia is seen as a great place to secure these metals um, and that, that, that the attraction factor is very high with Australia at the moment. Um, um, and, you know, as I said, there aren't many projects that are ready to go. You know, you can point to so many projects being promoted in the market, but when you actually scratch the surface and see how much work is done, there are very few that are ready to build. In fact, not, not many at all. Um, and it, it takes a large investment to get there. You know, there's been about a quarter of a billion dollars already invested in the Sunrise project uh, to get it to, to construction readiness. That's the sort of investment you need to make before you can even get to the to the table to play the game, so uh, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done um, to bring other projects to market. Yeah, no, no, I understand that, and I guess I would want to come to that because given you've got you know a quarter of a billion invested in this thing, what I don't your enterprise value is, is circa three hundred million. Um, you, You've got to get this equity bit right, and I'm wondering how much competitive tension there is. There's, the, you've extolled the virtues, and why, why shouldn't they? But if, is there competitive tension in those conversations, and are you going to be able to get sort of a, a a good deal, the right deal, to be able to finally kind of um, release the value in this project, as it were? Because I think all the upside is to come if you if you get that bit right, and the timing timing is right. If there's competitive tension, yeah, no, that's right. Um... Well, competitive tension is a function of how many parties are involved and the time frame you're working to. And at the moment, there is, um, you know, there, there are a number, so it's it's going well. Um, look, if I had a, you know, my own personal view on when I'd like things to be done, it, it'd be somewhere probably around mid-year to quarter three of this year, um, given the um, 
uh, I guess, where discussions are at the moment. But as I said, we're working with an industry that doesn't understand mining very well, and uh, there's a lot of hand-holding involved in explanation. So um, uh, we are trying to present them with a solution. As we keep saying, um, we're not here to make your life difficult. We're here to help you with the problem you have, and um, and hopefully we can we can show them how it's done properly. Fantastic. Well, look, um, Sam, I've enjoyed listening to this story. It's significantly advanced, one of the most significantly advanced stories. Um, I, I think of some parallels within the battery metal space who've you know been where you are and then just run because they've they've got the the, the financing sorted out and been able to communicate and that to the market. So, look, stay in touch. Let us know how you get on. I'll, I'll, I'm intrigued. Thanks very much. Uh, let me leave you with these thoughts before I finish. Um, this market is growing very, very rapidly, and uh, there's no doubt that the world needs uh, very large quantities of nickel and cobalt. We have a project in Australia that's ready to build. Um, engineering is well advanced. Quarter of a billion dollars has been already invested in it, and there's significant interest globally from the from automakers and battery manufacturers. Um, for us, we're playing a patient game here. We've uh, we've taken this asset from very early stage development to something that is now uh, ready uh, to build. And um, the market is coming to us. Not, we don't feel panicked by uh, the need to do something. And um, we feel as though there are very few solutions that the car industry has in the industry at the moment, but this is potentially one of the best that they have.